If you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 9. We're going to finish chapter 9 and start chapter 10 this morning. Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, um, we're going to put the, the text up on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible at all and you'd like one, uh, after the service, just head on over to the Commons, which is the bookstore right in the middle of our campus, and we'll make sure that you get outfitted with a Bible. That'll be our gift to you. Romans chapter 9. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been working through uh, some important, challenging theology and thoughts about, about God, and, and if you're encountering it for the first time, it has no doubt created some kind of questions and some things that you're kind of wrestling with, and, and if that's you, uh, tomorrow night, so Monday night in the comments at 7 p.m., the elders are going to have kind of a Q&A there, and so you're invited to that, that's a place for you to ask questions about things that you've either heard or maybe even been reading through and have some questions about, so we invite you to that, um, but, but this text here that we're going to get into in just a second, it, it brings us back back to, uh, and I think Paul here is really trying to emphasize the question. So chapter 9, no doubt, raises a lot of questions, but there's one fundamental question that Paul's bringing us back to in our section this morning. And, and the question is this, do you believe? Jesus Christ presents himself as Savior. He presents himself as the way, the truth, the life, the only way, the only way to salvation, the only solution. And the question is, do you believe. Let's, let's read this text together. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray together and really ask God to help us work through this passage and understand what it is that he would have for us this morning. So would you pray along with me? God, thank you for your word. And God, thank you for the promise of your word that it goes out and it doesn't return void. And so God, I am claiming that this morning. Holy Spirit, I'm asking for your help. I'm asking for the gift of preaching this morning. God, in no way do I want there to be a distraction from what you have for us. And God, I don't want to be one of those distractions. So, God, I just pray that you'd make me very small this morning. And, God, that you would just be seen for who you are. God, this time is not about a, anything else other than you. And so, God, I just pray that that would just be front and center in our hearts and minds. God, give us um, understanding. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the scriptures that we would learn something new about you this morning. That's in your name we pray. Amen. So in this text, Paul presents two types of people, and he, was, and he presents two responses from those people to the absurdity or the scandal of, of grace. And so this morning, what we're going to do just briefly in the next few minutes here, we're going to look at these two groups of people. We're going to work through an illustration that Jesus actually gives us in one of the Gospels, uh, and then we're going to consider our own response to it. But let's start in verse 30 of chapter 9. 
Paul says this, What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? So, so the Gentiles as a group, and this is anybody who's a, not a Jew, th- they didn't care about finding God's righteousness. They weren't looking for it or seeking it, but they found it anyway. They're kind of a people who are kind of fumbling around in, in the dark. And, and this is the wonder of, of the gospel. This is the wonder of what we've been talking about, especially the past couple of weeks. They, they weren't seeking it. They found it anyway. Uh, maybe better said is the, the good news actually found them. But because the Gentiles were a broken, confused, deceived by their sinful lifestyle and choices, but it pleased God to reveal his son to them and to us and to offer salvation to us if we would receive it by faith. So not looking for it, but Gentiles received total forgiveness, new life, eternal life, no longer distant, brought near to God, don't deserve it, not looking for it, but God in his mercy takes us in, draws us close, and gives us what we never dreamed possible. It's the miracle of grace, pure and simple. And then in contrast, the next couple verses, he says, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, as if they could earn it. And, And in doing so, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So the gospel of a righteousness that comes by faith, it's been sweeping through the Gentile population in, in places like Rome. But, but by contrast, Israel, which is most of the Jews in the Roman Empire, they fell short on their own law. So the, the law was given, and, and it reveals sin and points people to the need for Jesus. But most of the Jews did not accept Jesus as a king or a savior. And so their approach to God was faulty, and it resulted in stumbling and offense rather than hearing forgiveness and new life. And so by contrast to the Jews, the the Gentiles, uh, the the Jews were obeying the law of the letter. They offered a river of animal blood and sacrifices. They kept all the dietary laws. They um, established the priesthood. And in general, the Jews tried to do pretty much everything right. Okay, so in our economy, how does this add up? So what went wrong? Why did it not work out for them? Because they had did what God said, so why were they not saved? And the answer comes down to this. They were thinking that by simply keeping the rules, they would be saved. Jesus did not come for religious rituals or icons. He, he came for the human heart. And, and that's what this comes down to. It comes down to the motivation of the heart. They, they thought by keeping the rituals year after year that that was all that God required. But the whole point of the law was to point further to Jesus who would one day fulfill the law in his life, death, and resurrection. And to just go through the motions meant that they were turning the law, which was something good. The law was a good thing that God gave his people. But they turned it into kind of a do-it-yourself religion of works. And what we've seen in the scriptures and what we know is that human-generated righteousness or rightness is hollow and worthless. True righteousness is, is by faith. And that means that we come to God, the sinners that we are, and we have the empty hands of faith. And we're claiming and trusting only in Jesus Christ. But this thinking is not foreign to us because it still goes on today. Because there's people here today and, and you think because you've attended church that you're somehow earning favor or some kind of merit w- with God. Like, well, maybe we know there's not a score sheet, but there has to be a score sheet somewhere. And hopefully me being here gets me some kind of tick on, this, on the score sheet. I mean, it is good that you're here, but, but good religious rituals can't save you. If, if you want to be saved, if you want to be set right, if you want to be made alive, if you want to be put back together with God, you have to deal with Jesus. You, you can't avoid him. You can't use religion, even, even good religion, as a substitute for the Son of God. It is salvation by faith in Jesus. 
And the Jews stumbled over this point, and that's why so many of them missed salvation. Now, understand here, Paul is, is not arguing that Gentiles are good and that Jews are bad. What he's saying is we're all in the same boat, and that ship is sinking fast. And when it comes to salvation, no one has an advantage over anyone else, and it takes us back to the question of Jesus. That's, that's the difference. That's the question. But, but that's also where so many people stumble, both then and today as well. Verse 33 tells us that. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So to make his point, what Paul, the, the writer of this letter here, what he's done is he's taken two very familiar passages out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 8 and verse 28. And he's taken these two verses and he's combined them to show that Jesus is both a stumbling stone and a cornerstone. And he said, to some, he's a stone that causes men to stumble. And that word stumble, it's the literal picture of like, uh, if you've ever, uh, like in the middle of the night, kind of walked around and you wonder what toes are for. To toes are for finding furniture in the middle of the night. But, but that's the same picture there. And it, it, that pain, that, uh, and, and almost a pain that causes anger, right? Um, and, and, and that's the picture of the stumbling there. But to others, he is a cornerstone of life. And those who build their lives on him will never be put to shame. Many people stumbled over Jesus in this day. The religious leaders of the day, they stumbled over him because of, they were offended by his teaching on hypocrisy. The Pharisees, they stumbled because they were offended by the fact that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. The Romans were offended because Jesus disrupted the public peace. And Jesus actually, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, if you have a Bible, you can turn there, but Jesus actually gives an illustration, and it portrays this frustration that people had with him, that, that people ultimately had with grace. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story to a group of people, again, that, that lays this out. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. I'll read the story here. And so he also, that's Jesus, he also told this parable or illustration to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so this is the story that Jesus tells. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, who was a religious leader, and other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then in contrast, in verse 13, there's a tax collector in the temple, and he's standing far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, some of you, you've heard this story before. You're kind of familiar with that parable. But I want us to look at it with, with, with fresh eyes because a lot of times in the Scripture, if you've been around church or familiar with the Scriptures, when you hear Pharisee, you automatically think that they're like the villain, right? So they've got the black hat and the pencil-thin mustache, right? And they're the ones that they never want to have any fun or never want to hang out. They're not very loving or gracious, and there's nothing redeemable about them. And it's, it's a little bit unfair, so for once, just kind of as we glance at the story, let's give him a little bit of a break and concede because in the text, uh, it, it doesn't seem like he's that bad of a guy. 
most of the time when Jesus is addressing Pharisees, he's accusing them of being hypocrites. But it doesn't seem to be the case here because this guy seems to actually do what he says he does. And the image that we get is that he's someone who actually goes above and beyond the requirements of the law. Because the law requires you to tithe, for instance. And he apparently tithes on things that are not necessarily required to be tithed on. So, so tithing... They're giving 10% is a good thing. You should be tithing. In fact, there's some pastors here who would like some of y'all to be tithing the way that this Pharisee tithes, right? For different reasons, but still. So, but, but there, there's, there is a good thing that comes from tithing too. There's freedom and generosity. There's freedom in giving the way that we've been given to from, from God. Not in like a folk magic kind of way, but it, it does breed joy and it does breed blessing. Fasting is also a really good thing. So, so fasting accomplishes much in a life with God. Uh, a common Jewish person was actually not required to fast all that much. And here's a guy who fasts two days a week. And from what we know of this culture, the people that fasted this way, they saw themselves as seeking God for the atonement and restoration of all Israel. So he's not just necessarily showing off. He's, he's probably a part of a particular group of people that deprives themselves intentionally seeking for the glory of God to be restored to, na- to Israel as a nation. But when we see that he prays, he prays like, like some of the people in your small group pray. When they finally get a chance to pray, they turn it into like an instructional sermon rather than just like talking to God. They're trying to kind of like say something to the group. It's not necessarily a prayer. Some of you are like that, which is why you don't think that's very funny that I bring that up. But <laughs> just a friendly hint for you. So he's standing there and praying. And in, in, in verse 13, the tax collector who's kind of standing off to the side. So you've got to think just time of congregational worship, corporate worship, maybe even a little bit like this. And he's, probably, he's off to the side. And a little bit about the tax collector. He would be a Jew who was working for the oppressive Roman government. And this Jew would be extorting his own people for personal profit. They were um, considered dishonest, traitors, extortionists. They didn't even enjoy the same civil liberties as, as, their, as their people. According to Jewish law, they were considered a non-person. And, and tax collector, too, gets a little bit of a character for us, too. We just think, well, that's just kind of like an IRS employee. But, but these tax collectors, they were uh, greedy people who were getting wealthy by exploiting their own people. So maybe a little bit like a tax collector or IRS agent. But, but so, so here's the contradiction of, of these two people there. And it was even worse, actually, for the tax collector because according to Levitical law, if you were to swindle someone, if you were to take something dishonestly or extort someone, you'd have to pay them back what you took for them plus a fifth of what you took for them. So it would be impossible for many, if not all, of these tax collectors to be able to properly repay all that they owed. So these people, according to the law, are incapable of repentance. Because according to the law, repentance meant that you would have to make restitution and reparations for the wrong that you've done. So the assumption here of the tax collector is if you've crossed the line, if you've moved into that particular industry, there was no way that you could ever make your way back. So we have this man, this tax collector, standing off in the corner. He is despised, rejected by his own people. No one wants anything to do with him. He, he walks into the temple. He hears the prayer of the Pharisee or probably over, just overhears the prayer of the Pharisee. And he prays a very simple prayer. God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. God, there's not much else I can say. Just say, have mercy on me. 
the, the phrase in the Greek, when he talks about beating his breast, it was rarely, uh, if ever, used to describe a man's behavior. It was normally used and reserved for a, a woman at a funeral would often do this, uh, especially a professional mourner who would be at the funeral and would just be intensely weeping and she'd be so overcome that she would just start beating right above her heart. And, and it's unprecedented that a Palestinian man would ever show this kind of emotion, especially in a public place. But here, this man becomes so unglued in the presence of God. His heart is so broken that he beats his, his chest in this unprecedented display. And he says, God, have mercy on me. And Jesus, as he's telling the story, he's addressing a group of people um, that would know all about the Pharisees. And they would consider these Pharisees good citizens, good upright citizens, the kind of person you want as a neighbor, and then he brings in to contrast the tax collector who would immediately be a villain in this context. And so imagine the shock at that when Jesus gets to the end of the story and he asks the question, who do you think goes home justified? Everyone would automatically think, well, the Pharisee does because he's been the one who's been praying and fasting and tithing. So why would it make perfect sense that he would be the one who goes home righteous or, or justified? But instead, he doesn't. The other man does. And all he does, he just comes in off the street in, in a fit of desperation, prays a very simple prayer, but yet yeah, he's the one who's justified and righteous. And, and I was talking to Tim about this earlier, and you know, the truth is, we're both of these people. Maybe, maybe we try to like, well, I want to align in one camp or align in the other, but the truth is, we're actually both these people, because there are times when we are very Pharisee-like. And then there's times when we are just so broken and busted over our sin that we can't even pick our head up. And all we can say is, God, just have mercy. And, and we, we like the story. We like, you know, now looking back, and we looked at the tax collector wins. But if you're a Pharisee, you don't really like this story because you've deep down presumed that God loves you because you've been doing the right things. But that's us a lot of the times, too. We, we think it has to make, it has to make some kind of difference to God that we're doing all these good things. Yes, I know we don't earn it. I know we don't deserve it. But I have been doing some pretty good things. It has to matter somewhere. I have to be earning something somewhere. And, and God does want us to live in a way that doesn't lead to harm or destruction. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the righteousness of God, what Paul is talking about here in 9 and 10, when it comes to the righteousness of God, when it comes to a holy, sinless God, no one, no matter what you do, how hard you work, you will ever get close to that holiness or righteousness. We keep going back to Romans chapter 3, and I'm glad that we do, because in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, all have sinned and fallen short. And, and the chasm between us and the righteousness of God is, is so far and so radically that you can put the, the life of the tax collector and the, and the life uh, of the Pharisee up against each other. And in the grand scheme, uh, all the hard work that the Pharisee has done has not gotten them any closer than the tax collector. Because what we see over and over again in Scripture, no matter what we've done, no matter where we come from, it's not just breaking the law. It's not just doing bad stuff. We are dead in our sin and rebellion against God. And that's what Paul says over and over again, right? Dead is dead. In the Bible, we see that there is literally nothing that anyone can do to merit anything good from, from God because we're too dead for that. The only thing that we can do is be like Lazarus. So in the scripture, there's a story of this man named Lazarus. He's a friend of Jesus. Lazarus dies. Jesus is obscenely late to his funeral and shows up and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, rotting, stinking, 
And Jesus calls him forth, and the Spirit of God enters this dead man and raises him to new life. That's us. That's all we can do. The only thing that we bring forward is this stinking, rotting corpse. And the only thing that we can do is when the Spirit of God enters us is just respond to the call of God to come forward. We are Lazarus. And this, this is scandalous. This is, this is the gospel. No matter how good or, or righteous you think you are, the, the Bible tells us it's just filthy rags. No matter who you are, where you come from, we all need grace. We all need Jesus. And, and this is where it gets difficult for people then, but also for people today too. The, the scripture tells us they, they stumble over him. And you might be here and, and you, I don't even know why you're here, but you're, you're here because somebody invited you, thought you were getting lunch out of it. And I hope you get a good lunch. But but you stumble over, over Jesus. And you might stumble over the exclusiveness of, of his claims being the only way, the only truth, the only source of life. Yeah, he was a good guy. He did some good things. But he can't be the only way. There has to be something plus. Or there has to be another way or, or someone else. You might stumble over the implications of the cross. Because to agree with the cross means that you agree your sin or your rebellion against God demands death. The cross means that you deserve death. And as Christians, we're crazy. We celebrate this cross. We celebrate this instrument of torture and death. Because we believe, yes, our our sin did demand death. But Jesus took the place where we should have been. So that instead of death, we now get life and life eternal. You might stumble over the simplicity of salvation because we inherently want to do something to earn it. We do want Jesus, we do do like that, but we also want credit for our own contributions. But but, but here's, here's the truth. Salvation is simple because Jesus did all the work. It's free because Jesus paid the price for our sin. This is the the scandal and the absurdity of the gospel because Jesus looks at us and he says, I will forgive who I will forgive and I will restore who I will restore. And, and when we hear that kind of stuff, we want to bring up all the radical examples of evil people in the, in the world. But, but, but there is nothing particularly creative about any form of human evil. Because our hearts are all perverse and our hearts are all corrupt in the same ways. There's just varying degrees of external horror that we experience. And it doesn't matter who we are because everybody in turn needs the same grace, the same gospel, the same blood of Jesus. So there is not much difference between you and me and the notorious sinners that we want to put up there. I I hear people, when we start to talk about this kind of thing, especially when we were working through Romans chapter 9, and and they talk about how scandalous it is that, that in the Bible there is a God of wrath. But at the end of the day, no one is that scandalized by a God that's wrathful. Because that actually makes sense. But what is deeply scandalous is a God of grace and mercy who distributes it wherever and to whoever and however he pleases. A God who gives you what you can deserve, you can actually wrap your head around that because that is a God that you can create in your own image. Because you want to give people what they deserve, good or bad. The the glory of God is not just that he is so bright and shiny, and he is, but in the book of Isaiah, when the scripture tells us that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are higher than ours, it comes directly after God telling his wayward sons and daughters that I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. Your rebellion against me is forgiven. The, The basis of the glory of God is his mercy and his love. What makes him so glorious is that his love is infinitely beyond any form of human comparison or comprehension. 
It's a love that defies our capacity for reason. And anything good that we have, anything good that we have is because of God. And we don't have anything to offer him except death that he miraculously transforms into life. It is scandalous, it is absurd, it is offensive, but it comforts, and it's so true. I have a little bit of a confession. When I was studying for this this week, um, I was kind of annoyed, and it was very difficult for me because I was like, well, what is the new thing, or what is the fresh angle, or house, or, I mean, what, I, okay, it's the gospel, but what else can I say about it? What else can we do with it? And I just had to stop because I, I'm deeply convicted about being inoculated to the gospel. I do not want ever, I don't ever want the good news to become old news. This should not be normal for us. And, and, and maybe you do, you feel like, okay, are you going to go somewhere with this message today? Is there something? Not really. I only got two pages left, so we're almost done. But this is the source of our celebration. This is the source of our thankfulness. This is our source of life. This truth that we were dead. And God in his mercy sends his son so that we might be brought to life. And I... If that's not flashy enough for you, I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. Because this is the best news to ever hit planet Earth. And so, but Paul does give us something to do with it in Romans chapter 10. He gives us just four verses. I'll read them here. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That phrase right there is so key. If you're like a highlighter, underliner, circle, or person in your Bible, that right there, that phrase, submitting to God's righteousness, is so key for us. Because it, it, it says, I'm not relying on a righteousness that I create on my own or that I get through any other avenue, but it is a righteousness that only comes through the person of Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his finished work on the cross and his power over Satan, sin, and death and the resurrection. That phrase encapsulates all that. And it says, and I'm going to submit or I'm going to line my life up under that. That's what matters the most is that I submit to that. And well, why is that so important? Because Christ, verse 4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. One of the things I love about the, the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, is his just all-around passion and zeal. But you see it here again. I mean, he knows the predicament that his fellow people are in, but yet he is so passionate. He so badly wants them to be saved from divine wrath. That's a whole nother talk for a whole nother time, but just let that sit on you. Like, do you have that same zeal about people in your life? And he commends the moral and religious zeal of his people, but he also tells them, look, your, your zeal, your enthusiasm is misguided because you believe that you are the source of righteousness and you don't trust in the provision that God has set forth in Jesus. And Jesus is the end or the, or the goal of the, of the law. And, and these verses also help us, and they serve as a good reminder to us that it's possible to be zealous for God and even zealous for righteousness and not be saved. 
Because at the end of the line, the day, the distinguishing line among humans is not between those who have zeal and those who don't have zeal. The distinguishing line is between those who have faith and those who do not have faith. And Paul's plea and the plea of the gospel is, is quite simple, extremely profound. It says this, by faith, submit to the righteousness of Christ. And his plea to people, and not just the people here in this letter, but the people here today in this room. The invitation and the plea to you is, instead of stumbling over Jesus, stand on him. Instead of Jesus being a stumbling stone in your life, let him be the cornerstone of your life. Build your life on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. That, that's the invitation. That's the invitation here every time we gather. That's the invitation that God might be knocking on the, the door of your heart right now with that. And if that's you, can I just, one, thank you so much for being here today. I flat out love that you are here with us today. I love it. I, I love it. And if you have any questions or prayer, or there's stuff that you're hearing or experiencing, you don't just quite get it, I want to invite you. There's going to be people that are up here. You can come track me down. There's pastors, people with lanyards, just maybe the people that brought you. And just start the conversation or, or maybe even finish the conversation tonight. But that invitation is for you here. There, there, is, an, a, there is the opportunity to be set right with God because of what Jesus has done. Come, come in faith and repentance to that. And then, Christian um, church, to the, 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 does your life look like it's built on a cornerstone? Or even though you're a follower of Jesus, does it look like you still stumble over him? I mean, that's, that's one thing to say you're a follower of Jesus. It's a whole other thing to actually follow. But if he's the cornerstone, that what, does, it, does it show up in the way that you spend money? Does it show up in the way you treat your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, in the way that you work? Does, does it show up with thank? Thanksgiving and, and celebration of who God is? Does your life look like it's built on a cornerstone? That's the, that's the challenge and the encouragement to us this morning. And then also, and, and maybe this is just more for me, but I'm going to say it out loud to everybody, but just let's not grow cold or get bored of the good news of Jesus Christ. If, if we lose that, we, we have nothing. We're just a bunch of people who have nothing better to do for an hour and a half on a Sunday. I'm so thankful for, um, for this text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the, for the gospel. God, I'm, I'm so thankful that you love us the way that you do. God, I'm so thankful that you have provided salvation. God, because we, we were lost, we were dead, and God, by your mercy, your grace, your great love for us, you took a penalty that was due us, and you breathed life into us. God, that is an amazing truth. And it is an amazing reality for those of us that you've called. And God, I know this morning you're still calling, you're still inviting God, you're still speaking, you're still working, even now in, in this moment. And God, I just pray that um, there are no distractions in the minds or hearts of people. But God, um, your invitation is going out once again. That we would submit to Jesus, 
that he would not be a stumbling stone, but that he would be a cornerstone. God, I just thank you for the way you make yourself available like that. And God, I pray that people um, would respond to that invitation. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.